The ag industry's debt-to-income ratio is the highest it's been since the mid-1980s. Farm income has dropped 50% since 2013. So what happens if farm income continues to decline? This is episode two of The Growing Debate. The Growing Debate is a podcast series that questions beliefs about agriculture. We take you to farmers, ranchers, and experts to find answers. Some of the issues that we'll cover in this podcast are challenging. Some are empowering. How is farming evolving to face these issues? How is it going to be the driving force of positive change? That's what we'll explore on The Growing Debate. The topics will be complex, maybe even a little messy, but the discussion will be honest. The series is sponsored by Corteva AgriScience, so you'll get an inside look at modern agriculture, how it impacts you and the food you pick up at the grocery store, buy at a restaurant, and feed your children. We'll meet real-world farmers who grow the food, fuel, and fiber to meet the needs of a growing world. Be sure to subscribe to The Growing Debate because you're not going to want to miss an episode. I'm your host, Diego Footer. I've interviewed hundreds of farmers, and even after almost a decade in agriculture, I'm still surprised by the impact that farming has on society. As you listen to The Growing Debate, don't expect easy answers. In fact, at the end of each episode, expect to walk away with more questions. I encourage you to reach out to farmers to find your own answers. Which leads us to our second episode, The Valley of Death. While large and small farms are growing in number, mid-sized farms, they're struggling. Many are even going bankrupt. So what will happen to the once dominant mid-sized farms? How will this loss affect us and our food supply? Is the valley of death actually a symptom of a bigger issue in our society? To get these answers, I visited a farmer who's experienced both sides of the valley of death. You don't find yourself having a concept of how big agriculture can be till you find yourself driving around farm country, farms reaching as far as the eye can see. You know, farm country is an interesting place. It's one where it can change a perspective. As somebody who lives in a city that's very crowded, when you go through farm country, you're on a two-lane road that might not have another car going past you for miles and miles. There might not be a house on your left or your right. There's only a few signs of civilization, the power lines, the occasional silo, the occasional barn off in the distance. But it's out of this area where farms are carved, where food is grown. Eventually, we drive up to two buildings off the side of the road. It's the shop of farmer Jason Lindner. Today, we're going to find out what it takes to make and keep his operation successful. I'm going to get a feel for how size plays into agriculture and how he thinks he fits into the larger picture. Then I meet Jason. He farms more than 3,000 acres across Wisconsin, Iowa, and Missouri. My name's Jason Lindner. I farm, uh, I've got an ag degree. We own and operate uh, Lindner Land and Grain here in uh, Market County where we're at today. I mean, right now we're looking out at a cornfield. What's your current 
corn soy mix are you on an annual rotation we're pretty much 50 uh, 50 so 50 percent corn 50 percent soy this this field we're looking at here was planted i think like uh i think we planted on a sunday night it was like april 28th or 29th something like that so it's been in the ground for a while jason took me to his shop where he showed me his fleet of equipment the machines are absolutely massive think of your standard suv times five tires taller than I was. These machines, they're huge. And these machines are typically referred to as iron in the ag world. And big machines mean big bucks. It's very expensive. So here's one John Deere 8335R. What's the main use of this? Uh, this is one of our tillage tractors. Uh, we have this on a piece of vertical tillage tool that we run over all of our ground within the spring. It's on a, a 36 foot Case International uh, 330 turbo till, vertical till that uh, will till the ground up kind of shallow, leaves it level, warms up the soil, takes out the first slush of weeds. So that's what this tractor does is, uh, is, is mainly a tillage tractor. You know, given how technology is advancing, how critical is access to this equipment? Like I'm looking at this tractor, I'm sure it's not cheap. How does that affect farmers now with technology advancing? The cost of equipment, I imagine, is not going down. How do you stay current with the times and yet keep the farm profitable and moving forward? Very good question. Uh, my son is in an MATC program in Madisonville, like a diesel technician or whatever, and it's it's very critical to be able to, to farmers be able to do stuff themselves because, as everyone knows, it's it's costly to have a mechanic come out and try to fix things, which a lot of times you have to have them come out because the machinery today is so detailed and, and there's so many things that need to be you know, pulled up on a screen to see what's wrong with it. But, but a farmer has to be able to try to do a lot of it himself to, to stay competitive and, and save on costs. You know, at 3,000 acres, how do you think you fit into the farming picture? Are you big? Are you small in terms of big farms? I probably not say I'm big and I'm not small, some, somewhere in between, I guess. So. Little side note here. There are many definitions to farm size floating around out there. Some look at acreage and others look at cash income. Either way, the average size of farms in 2017 was 441 acres, slightly above the 434 acres in 2012. I think there'll be potential in the future to expand if we want to with some uh, additional land. Uh, farming is, is trying to uh, do so many things in a small window that you can only do so many things. And if you have a year like this year where you have some stumbling blocks where the weather doesn't help you out, it gets later, you, you uh, have to plant the crop later and maybe have some uh, reduced yield potential. Uh, so it's just balancing out how much we can do and how much we can do good and how much we can and uh, you know take care of properly and, and make a profit on what we're doing. So that's one thing we have to figure out in the future is, is how, how many more acres we want to add to our operation and still be as efficient as we're being now and as in the past. I mean, at 3,000 acres, what's even worth adding? It all depends on what kind of quality it is. If you can add a 50 good acres, you know, that's, that's always something you want to look at. It's just... Uh, when you get when you get bigger, you kind of want to get uh, quality kind of trumps quantity. They always say uh, you know bigger isn't better, better is better. I have a son that that may want to come back and farm full time when he's done with college, so that that might uh, be a determining factor. And 
if we expand, you know, greatly or not much. It's kind of an ongoing deal. Every year is different. The ag economy always throws you curveballs or things you didn't think were coming or whatever. So every year is different. And that expansion, and you're buying land, it's coming from somewhere. Is that a smaller farm getting out of business? As an example, yesterday we just closed on a farm in Juneau County. We bought a farm. It was 132 acres, pretty much all tillable. The lady was wanting to settle her estate, so we, we bought it from her estate through a, a realtor, and we closed on that one. But there's there's uh, <clears throat> there's nice patches of land around the country. Uh, but like you say, back to what we talked about before, it's nice to try to buy something close to home or close to what you have for a base now so that you can, you can uh, keep your, your machinery efficient and uh, keep it off the road. Are we in a time where it's farms of your size that you need to be at the size to operate and be successful? Can a 132-acre farm make it in today's day and age? Uh, as bad as it sounds, it's, it's tough for the smaller <clears throat> farms to, to make it because they just can't generate enough income. You talk back to this tractor again. I mean, the, if you buy a new tractor today, this size is probably going to cost you $325,000. And it's just, you just, you have to have, you have to be in the game to be able to uh, spread your cost over your acres you already have to... To, to farm today because this everything costs so much whether it's tractors or whether it's seed corn or whether it's chemicals or whether it's fertilizer or diesel fuel everything is just so costly and uh in the, as you probably know in the ag economy <clears throat> it's been you know the dairy industry's had a tough run and the grain industry's had a tough run or whatever so it's just hard to generate enough revenue uh for the little guys to stay in it just you know, but all the things that cost your health care and, and your groceries and your telephone and your electricity, all that stuff adds up so fast that, that a, a smaller farm that can't generate enough revenue has a hard time staying in business. I mean, do you see a time where those smaller farms, the 100 to 1,000 acre farms, just go away, given what you're saying? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're on to the right thing there. I in think. the facts, back it up. The last census showed that the number of farms that have 2,000 acres of land or more increased by 27%. Farms between 500 and 999 acres dropped by about 30%. Interestingly, the very small farms between 10 and 49 acres, those climbed 31%. It's just harder and harder to to meet all the demands of, of your costs with your machinery costs, your seed costs, your health insurance costs, all that stuff adds up so much and the, the, the revenue just isn't there on the smaller ones to support, you know, big families. And some of the stuff I give these guys credit are doing the organic stuff, you know, they're trying to find these markets that are, that are going to pay them more uh, to produce stuff. So that, that might be the biggest new thing is, is producing, you know, some people have a lot of money and they want to, they want to, you know, they want a good food source. They want to know where their animals are coming from. They want to they want to know where their grains come from. They want to know the farmer is. So they'll be willing to pay more. And I think that's that's a niche market that's coming. But it's going to be either that or or big. You know, I think that's just the trend that's we're in because we've talked about it. And we can probably we can probably double in size in five years if we want to. So we could probably get to six thousand acres in five years if we want to. But it's just a matter of can we do that 
and do it good and and uh, you know make more money than we're making now I guess that's the thing so we just have to decide you know how big we want to get and how much labor we want to add and all the things that go with it and in general in farming does double the acreage mean double the profit or does the math not really work like that you know not necessarily because like we I said before there you have to do so many things in a tight window and so if you want to double your your size in one year you better double your planting capacity and double your tillage capacity and double your labor so you can still try to jam as much stuff in that window as you can to get that crop in early so if you have more land and you can distribute all those fixed costs like you said across that more land you're going to come out better ahead because there's no price advantage for scale uh, certain size growers have some benefits all of our corn goes for the ethanol industry but larger growers may get a little better price or whatever because they have the ability to store some on the farm and and if they have a fleet of semis they might be able to you know if an ethanol plant needs corn like right now they might be able to get a better price because they can get the ethanol plant the corn they need fast from their bins on on their farm with their fleet marketing is your biggest challenge i think and and uh you don't you don't know whether you did a good job marketing your 2018 crop until now where you can look back and see you know what happened during the year last year when you should have sold when the top was and stuff and that's the age-old thing that farmers beat themselves up over is 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 trying to you know pick the high and not have to sell the grain at the at the low of the year so that's one of the challenges we work for we work with a couple of different marketing firms to to try to uh, do things to spread out our risk and try to try to sell some grain uh, during times of the year that have been historically the best time to sell or as far as the highest price of the year but it, it's a tough it's a tough go when to sell uh, you get you get a year like this year where you where you think that you're going to do one thing and then the news comes up of the you know the Chinese tariffs which can change everything or the Mexican tariffs that can change everything that, that you thought was going to happen. This year in addition to trade war farmers have experienced yield shortages, planting delays and record flooding that have all hindered their ability to predict the outcome of their 2019 season let alone potential profits. Something like that can throw a whole new wrench into your marketing program and uh, you know either benefits you or hurts you depending on on what happens with something like that do you feel like at this scale that you're more of a price taker than a price maker like yeah, you got some wiggle room it sounds like to kind of try and finesse things yeah we're we that's the thing we were i think we're price takers for our corn and soybeans uh the way we do it you know because we we're not organic or anything like that so we're kind of uh, just like everybody else is. We try to watch our costs because we can control them. We, we can control what we spend on machinery. We can control what we spend on seed. We can control what we spend on fuel. So if we can keep our costs low or, or uh, be as efficient as we can, that's, that kind of makes up a little bit for us being price takers on the, on the other end when we sell the grain. So augers, harvesters, sprayers, tractors, planters, there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into this. Do you have to own all this to do this? Do you rent it? Do you lease it? Good question. Uh, farmers do a little everything, I guess. A lot of people lease stuff and roll it over every year, two years or whatever. Uh, we own all of our equipment. We try to buy good used stuff. Uh, 
and uh, you know keep it and maintain it and and go that route. So we don't we don't lease anything. We own everything we have. So uh, it's expensive, but uh, we try to buy a lot of used stuff and we try to buy good stuff and keep it so we don't necessarily you know turn it over a lot of times or whatever so uh, that's that's our model you're buying equipment for life hopefully your life you know maybe even for the next generation you talked about recently you guys bought a farm off an estate how do you view generational succession you know you've done a lot of work here your son you have a daughter my wife and i got six kids we got five girls and one boy all of them have some interest in agriculture. Some of them go on to college for other things. Some are going to college for ag. I got the, uh, uh, the interesting asset. I got a son and a daughter who are interested in ag, and they've kind of done their a little partnership together where they're leasing a few acres and they're using my equipment or whatever. There's a 65-acre parcel that came up for sale, and uh, I helped them close on that. Like Jason, many farmers are looking to keep their farms in the family. And even with all the shifts in the industry, 97% of U.S. farms are still family-owned. Like I said before, it costs so much money in ag, whether it's buying land or buying tractors or seed, you got to have some help from somebody if you're a younger person that wants to get started. So, so I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to help my two kids get involved in it, and if I have more kids that want to farm someday. Uh, How do you inspire people then to get in and take over the reins? No, I, think, I think you gotta you gotta grow up with it or you gotta like it or you, you gotta you gotta come from it to be interested in it or, or as, as, as funny as it sounds have it in your blood or some some reason why you want to do it I, I always tell my son this it gets harder and harder to farm every year because you have you have more and more people watching what you do more and more people watching what you're spraying on your crops more and more people you know watching how you treat your animals and and with the evolution of Facebook and Instagram and all the other things that go with it, it's just uh, people can put their opinion out there and maybe not necessarily uh, have the right information of what they're going off. What are your thoughts on corporations collecting land, farming it out, or just investment companies buying up land and then leasing it out to farmers? I really don't have any opinion on it, I guess. That's what, that's what happens. And... Uh, some guys that's how they get to farm because they can't afford to buy it but they can rent it so that's how they're you know that's how they're able to farm is they can they can rent something every year and and stay in business and uh it's good it's good for some people uh because if if they're having financial problems but they still want to keep farming maybe they got to sell that piece pay off some debt but maybe they can still rent it back from the people that that bought it or whatever so there's a little everything that goes on you might be surprised to learn that 39% of all U.S. farmland is rented or leased. Even more surprising is that 80% of the rented farmland is owned by non-farming landlords, according to the USDA. There's uh, land owned by everybody, and at one time, you know, there were all the farms that were 160-acre farms, and they had buildings and and houses on it, but that's, it, as time goes on, there's fewer and fewer of those. The, the farmland gets bought up by a, a farmer, and the house and the barn gets peeled off and sold to somebody else, you know. So the farmsteads are kind of breaking up, but there's not a lot of uh, original farmsteads anymore. But that's just kind of the trend we're in and kind of the, what's been happening. You know, for somebody who wants to get into this or just doesn't have a concept, how, how tough is this financially? Uh, I don't think people realize 
how much money it costs to farm. Most people, you know, you, you, you buy your house, that's your biggest purchase. So if you buy a $200,000 house, you know, that's most people's biggest purchase in their life or whatever, and they work their whole life trying to pay that off, a lot of people. Well, in, in uh, agriculture today, uh, a new planter, a new 60-foot planter may cost you $375,000. Uh, a new sprayer, if you want to buy a new sprayer, a new sprayer might cost you $350,000. You want to buy a new tractor, that might cost you $325,000. And that's not interest-free. you got to pay interest on all that stuff, too. So uh, in, our, in, our, in our world today, it just costs so much money to get into the game that, that it's hard for anybody to get into it unless you've got a grandpa or a dad or an uncle or a brother or somebody that will help you get started and maybe share their equipment with you to uh, to help you get a, a start because it just it just costs so much to get into land we haven't talked about land you know uh, when the peak hit in 2012 you know land prices were you know high you know if, an area three four five six thousand dollars an acre you start adding up uh, you know four or five hundred acres at five thousand an acre that adds up pretty fast you know who can who can afford to do that you know in today's terms with uh you know with that much with that much capital you have to come up with so it's 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 tough to get started can people make money doing this i think that's one thing that i hear from younger generations or why maybe a lot of people move off farms who grew up on farms is they see their parents struggle they see how tight it can be and yeah they might be profitable but they're not maybe ever getting ahead right and they feel like it's it's hard and they don't want to go through that so they go to a city or something to get another job what are your thoughts on that i think the back to my motto what i said before uh, bigger necessarily isn't better better is better well, i think there's things that are coming and things that are here and things that are going to be looked at in the future. You're going to have to be uh, on top of all that new technology. You're going to have to be on top of everything new coming out and do your own research and test plots for seed. Do your own research on, on what works good for your own chemicals. I think there's, I think there's money to be made in agriculture uh, in the future. It's just going to be the ones that are making the money are the ones that are going to be efficient, that are watching their costs that are are doing a good job with their yields are able to sell their products and not you know not be stuck with their products to get the next generation perspective i spoke to jason's daughter paige about what it's like to be a young person in agriculture you know what was it like for you growing up on a farm um so i grew up with this very tainted view of agriculture because um there's just kind of a lot of bullying around it. So in high school, I was FFA president, very involved, and not a lot of people wanted to hear what it was about. This was like my home life. Um, it was so important to my family, and obviously you've heard from my dad, and it's like his world. And so to come alongside him in that, and then to go into school and just to have kids not understand and, and take that typical view of a farmer that it, they're in overalls, they could pitchfork. And a lot of times my dad kind of fed that image because he would come to our school events with dirty jeans. And um, But then I remember uh, in college, I went into the big city, um, didn't want anything to do with the country anymore, uh, and found myself kind of being uh, backtrack and involved in ag. Um, so I'd bring friends home and they just couldn't believe I grew up like this. We'd drive them through the fields. Something that's so normal for me was so... Um, just foreign to them. So yeah, and then I actually found myself working at tons of jobs that had agriculture involved. I think all of us kids for a while rebelled from it and then kind of found our way back in our own special um, way to being involved. Do you ever see a day where you come back here 
and become a part of the farm not necessarily in the production side but yeah with some level of involvement definitely my husband's an accountant and so he um he has great interest in this. He grew up in suburbia. And so he, I think it's his dream to one day come back. My, my dad talked about something that's so underrated is being outdoors. You get to be outside all the time. Um, you're not like constrained to one place. You get to hop in multiple forms of machinery and talk to, and he, I'll watch my dad go from like businessman to farmer to negotiator to, and so, um, yeah, I, I definitely see myself coming back. Um, my dad didn't mention, but my sister's studying uh, ag business. My brother's ag mechanics. Um, I started marketing, and then we, he has two younger daughters that are still in school, and then one of my sisters in the medical field. So, um, I mean, already he's got 50% rate of kids that are involved in agriculture, so that's pretty awesome. And what was your perception of just life growing up on a farm? You, you're saying, like, your dad was working a lot to do what he had to do to make it all work. Did you feel like the farming lifestyle was hard or did it seem normal? Did you feel like, did you feel different than other kids whose parents had quote unquote normal jobs? I think I felt normal, but then I'd kind of like introduce, um, classmates, friends to this and it, I would just watch their perceptions completely change. And so that was kind of a really cool thing, especially in college. I mean, I went to school in the city, so bringing people back, they had no idea this existed. It was like almost they thought it was like out of the movies. Um, so growing up, I like loved this. And so it wasn't until, you know, you get around like nasty kids that are like, oh, my, you're weird or you're, you don't look like us. Um, yeah. But, and I mean, I'm here I am in heels in the shed. And so I like don't really fit the mold uh, as far as like looking it. But my parents always encouraged that. They said like ag isn't something that's like dirty, gross and like shameful. It's it's actually really honorable. And so that's something that I've seen like loyalty wise. Like my dad, obviously he provides for us, but my mom stayed at home with us in our entire like childhood and even now. And she's able to do that because he's so successful and he's so like driven and timeline oriented and um, he's really he's really got his stuff together. So, Paige had a great point. City dwellers and suburban residents don't have to be disconnected. It may all seem unrealistic until you experience it, understand it. Now back to Jason. What do you think is the general public's perception of what you do? Three thousand acres, corn and ghost ethanol. With the evolution of Facebook, with the evolution of all the social media stuff, you you hear a lot of people's opinions of you and a lot of them uh, they're not necessarily uh, thinking the farmers are like what my grandpa and grandma's generation were I mean we don't wear we don't wear bib overalls anymore and we don't do stuff like that uh, we don't raise chickens we're we're trying to raise stuff I've always said we as farmers will raise whatever people want to eat I, I, I keep trying to uh, improve the image of agriculture uh, my kids have been involved in agriculture We've, we've had uh, 4-H projects. They've sold animals in the county fair. Uh, we've taken ag classes in high school. So, so there's fewer and fewer kids in ag. Uh, so it is a challenge of how we as farmers are going to educate the public that, that we're doing everything we can to, uh, to, to produce the food that you eat as efficiently as we can, as safely as we can, as, as whole as we can, and uh, keep that uh, good trust that, that people had with farmers 25 years ago and keep it from now and into the future. What are you most proud of, you know, starting your farm up and being here today in 2019? If you look back at everything you've done. 
the nice thing I like about ag is that I never like to be doing one thing for, for a long time and, and what I'm doing now is, you know, I'm part agronomist, part salesman, part uh, marketer, uh, you know, part labor. I just, I, you wear a lot of different hats as a farmer. Uh, you're, not, you're not doing one thing all the time. You've got to be able to do a lot of different things and do a lot of different things pretty good if you want to uh, be in this business and be successful at it and stay in it. So uh, there's, there's no one thing that I'm most proud of. It's just kind of the totality of the situation is that I've got a good family. I've I got my health. I mean, it's just, I've, I'm, I'm just a lucky farmer. As I was listening to Jason and Paige, I began to think, is the valley of death an issue that goes beyond farming? Is consolidation at the top and specialization at the bottom just a bigger trend in our society? I found the same issues exist in the restaurant industry, with mid-sized chains contracting at a higher rate than big and small restaurant chains. What other industries could experience this trend in the future? How is it affecting us all? Talking with Jason reminded me of something an old wise farmer once told me. Size is not evil. It's not the size of the operation that makes it good or bad. It's the principles that an operation are guided by. And as Jason put it, bigger isn't better. Better is better. So after taking this in, some questions still remain. Is the decline of mid-sized farming a natural evolution of the industry? And is big really so bad? That's episode two of The Growing Debate. Thank you to the Lindner family for showing us around your operation and taking time to talk to us about these important issues. Keep an eye out for episode three when I'll speak with Austin Arndt about his conventional beef operation. Many of you want to know where your food comes from, and farmers want to tell their story. So how did food get so complicated? Tune in to find out. If you've enjoyed this inside look at modern agriculture, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode of The Growing Debate. If you have questions, feedback, or topics you'd like me to explore, shoot me an email at thegrowingdebate at corteva.com. Thanks for listening.